This podcast series is supported by members at Patreon. If you want to support this podcast series, head to patreon.com forward slash Cascadian Beer. Hey, future Aaron here. Uh, sadly, since I originally released this episode, this brewery is actually no longer operational. But I do hope you enjoy the episode. Cheers. What do you do when you can't find the beer you're looking for? You make it yourself. Welcome to the Cascadian Beer Podcast. My name is Aaron and I'm a Cascadian. I have a background in radio and television broadcasting. I'm a music producer and have a passion for beer. I don't consider myself to be an expert in beer by any means, but I do enjoy and respect the craft and the passion of these brewmasters. I want to learn from these pioneers and what sets them apart from the rest and why they choose to call Cascadia their home. Cascadia is a bioregion in the Pacific Northwest on the North American continent. It is made up of the U.S. states of Washington and Oregon, as well as the Canadian province of British Columbia. In this podcast series, I'll be profiling the unique breweries of Cascadia, a region that has a strong presence on the international beer scene. Today, I'm sitting down with Adam Chatburn, the owner of Real Cask in Vancouver, B.C. Adam focuses on the traditional styles of British ales and cask ales. I started by asking him what the idea was behind starting his brewery. So my idea was that I wanted to bring British-style cask ales to uh, BC. The problem was is that uh, there was a lot of people trying to do sort of British styles, ESBs, that kind of thing. But I was finding that they were making the final mistake of putting them into kegs and serving them overcarbed and too cold. And uh, as the craft beer revolution moved on and uh, and picked up pace, I was waiting for someone to really get in there and do it well so I could go there and drink. However, no one seemed to be doing it the way I thought it should be done. So I decided to put my money where my mouth was, and I organized with Chris and Dinah here at Callister to come on as one of the associate brewers and uh, actually do it the way that I was taught many, many years ago when I uh, was first a brewer in the UK. So for the listener that might not have had an actual Mm -hmm. traditional British-style ale, what is the immediate difference that the drinker would recognize? Well, the thing I always try and make clear to people is there's a difference between cask beer and real ale. Now, a cask beer is it's slightly different from a keg in that it's just a uh, stoppered with some plastic seals, but they don't have any additional CO2 added. All the carbon dioxide is created by the yeast inside. Now, when you put in things in a cask, some brewers put it in directly from a keg. Some people put it in from a bright tank. Some people then throw in crazy things, chili, jackfruits, God only knows what. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's fine. You know, that's really creative. There's some wonderful stuff been done. There's some great ideas and some fantastic beers been done that way. But that's very different from the real ale principle, which is do it to style, keep it simple, don't make anything silly, serve it the right way, i.e. from the cask through a beer engine, and then you'll have a much more traditional British style beer. So sticking like proper to the definition of that particular well, style, right? I try to for a couple of my beers. I try to keep that uh, that tight 
sort of camera UK style of beer, done the right way, stillaged, no CO2 added, just served properly. And I think there's, uh, there's more than enough uh, expats here in Vancouver and uh, around the province who, um, and people who visited the UK and enjoyed it there uh, who seem to think that it uh, seems to be pretty legit. So I'm quite lucky with that one. But also the model allows me to have some fun with casks as well. I like to do play around with doing sours, uh, much lighter sours, more balanced kind of things. And gruits, all kinds of fun things that uh, allow me to kind of flex my muscles a little bit more. But as long as I keep the bitter and the mild in the taps, most of the customers are pretty happy. Right. And your taps are completely different than a normal tap that somebody would... See, that's right? true most uh, beer taps are pushed through the kegs with co2 and so the tap when you open it is already pressure behind it and then opening it just allows the beer to come out whereas the engines that i use and you can see these online working very well uh, the ones that you used to see on coronation street and those kind of shows those northern british kind of shows in the pub uh, that are the big uh, wooden posts and those actually work in a different principle they have a small piston in the back and by pumping it you're actually drawing the liquid up from a lower level so there's nothing pushing it you have to pull the beer through it's slightly different process what we also do is we have these small shower heads that we put on the end of each of the uh, taps the cask taps uh, and those create uh, the push the beer through these small holes and that creates a cascade of bubbles similar to you'd see in in a guinness or a nitro beer and that gives it that creamy texture and that tight uh, head as well so those are kind of more common in the north of england rather than the south but that's what i like on my beers and i don't use it for all the beers like for sours and things like that it doesn't make much sense to make them a creamy sour but if it works it works again depends on the style in the beer that i'm serving and my whim that day if it's going to go through a sparkler or not so originally from the uk what got you into beer well, I um, first found out that one was able to homebrew when I was about 15. I realized that I could make this at home for, for pennies. I remember being 15 and being given some uh, money for the summer. And I bought a carboy and a uh, fermentation bucket and a pressure barrel, which we don't really have here that much. They're kind of like a Gatorade tub that can be pressurized uh, with a little faucet on the front. I bought those. I think they were about as five pounds each or something and then went to the pharmacist which was the place you could buy the little brew kits and then i uh yeah i decided to start making my own beer which meant that uh, i was automatically invited to teenage parties uh, right through uh uh, high school, as it were, because they knew I'd turn up with 40 liters of usually fairly unimpressive, very infected bitter, but it was free and it had alcohol in it, which is pretty much all people were after at that point. And so uh, it was kind of a fun system and anything didn't get drunk came home with me and I, uh, I finished it off myself. So it was, that's what really got me into it. I homebrewed right through university because again, money's tight and you can make it yourself for uh, a lower price. And then when I finished university, I actually through sheer luck, wound up working in a brewery in my hometown. And because I had a bit of aptitude and had a bit of experience, I quickly became the uh, the head brewer there. It's not a big position. There's only three people there. So it wasn't, you know, a big deal. It looks good on a resume. Well, it was rather. Yeah. Uh, but again, I was thrown to the dogs again there. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was shown once how to use the equipment and then was like, okay, you're in charge now. Off you go. But So this kind of teaching myself basic engineering and all this kind of stuff. The interesting thing was, is that this was back in 99. So there was, the internet was very nascent at the time. So you couldn't just kind of Google for recipes and clues and stuff. You had to 
actually go to the library and order a book to be able to uh, get in some information about it. So I did that for about two years. And then the brewery folded, unfortunately, because it was part of a bigger brew pub and hotel group that, that failed. So I was kind of never really thought I'd have the chance to do the job again. And so started working for uh, British government and then moved to Canada in nine, 2008 and started working for the Canadian government. Started volunteering in craft beer stuff, as one does. Uh, had a great time doing that. And then found myself president of Camera Vancouver, which was a great organization to be a part of. And what is that organization for our So Camera Vancouver, uh, Camera BC is a craft beer advocacy group. It's the only craft beer consumer advocacy group in, uh, in BC. It's dedicated to helping the consumers to know about craft beer, learn about it, uh, find out where it is, to try it and really enjoy it. So it's got a very heavy education mandate. It has a very strong event uh, program, a lot of education classes. And it also argues with the liquor board and the BC government over drinkers' rights because quite a lot of the time we get overlooked. The actual person who's paying the tax at the end of the day gets overlooked. And they really should have someone stepping up for them because there's a lot of things, industry and uh, mean that the consumers are getting a little bit of the thin end of the wedge. They're getting ripped off, they're getting shortchanged on a few things, and there's no one really stepping up for them. The liquor board isn't interested, the licensing people aren't interested, the police aren't interested. So there's a lot of little things like that. So it was a wonderful time to be a part of it just during the liquor review. And hopefully we managed to push a few things through that we were very much in favor of. Things like bringing in happy hour finally, when that came in about three years ago, which you know seems complicated completely normal now, but was a huge change at the time. And a few of the bits and pieces. So camera tries to stay focused on the consumer end. I would still be um, organized. I still teach classes for them periodically. And I'm always happy to volunteer my time. Unfortunately, I can't uh, run for the executive because in order to maintain that uh, independence, uh, we agreed that people involved in the craft beer industry at a management or uh, ownership level shouldn't be on the executives just to keep that separation of you know industry and consumerism which i fully support it was actually my suggestion to bring it in but uh, yeah as soon as i don't i would very much be involved with camera again so camera does stand for the campaign for real ale of bc it was actually based on the british organization camera uk which is the single biggest single issue consumer group in the world there's over nearly three hundred thousand members of that in the uk it's a very strong group but other than the name and an agenda to share and educate people. We don't really share that much. I still say we, even though I'm only a member these days. But yeah, it's they are very focused on their mission and we're very focused on our mission, which because we're in two different, totally different countries are going to be different issues that we have to chase. And completely different liquor laws as well. and Different liquor laws, yeah. different problems, different issues that are coming up. Uh, you know, Camry K was really put there to kind of maintain those real ales and the history of that so that they didn't, get, didn't die out uh, from commercial pressure. And they've done a fantastic job of that. But now, the, you know, the, this craft beer revolution is happening around the world and they're finding themselves in a very diffi difficult position because they were always straight up keg beer is no good like all keg beer is bad and that's clearly not the case you know as as well we know so it's that idea of moving away from real ale into craft beer it's kind of an interesting time there that's for sure aside from not being able to get it yourself was there any other drive behind you opening your own real ale brewery well a big chunk of it as i say was that it was i wanted something that i would be able to drink and enjoy 
I also think I'd probably um, talked quite a big game about it for a while and uh, and that kind of thing in uh, with camera and so forth. So kind of wanted to put my money where my mouth was and say, look, no, I do have the chops to actually do this. The other thing about it was I knew that it was a very small niche and it would not work in a lot of different environments. So, you know, people still ask, like, oh, you're going to open up your own brewery? And I'm like, and I don't know, like I'm not doing what I want to do. It's not enough of a niche to be able to make that work uh, in Vancouver, even though this is the biggest market. But also a lot of pubs aren't even equipped to serve your That's beer. right. So it's very difficult to find those kind of draft accounts and then package product would be even harder. So in order to maintain the level uh, that I want to do, the Callister model is perfect for me. We're just about to announce that we'll be here for a third year. So that we'll be the only group that's uh, been here at Callister this whole time uh, since we opened. It's actually interesting because when I was with Camera, I first met Chris and Diana, again, through Van Brewers, the local homebrew group, which is another fantastic organization. And they were looking to start a community brewery. And we actually had this huge meeting in um, downtown Eastside about five years ago now to, to come up with an idea of how to start some kind of community brewery. And there's a lot of different people with a lot of ideas, some stuff which was wildly impractical. But I brought my idea forward and Chris and Diana brought their idea forward and I chatted them about it. And as soon as they started talking, I was like, oh, yes, these guys are way further along. They've got a much better, much stronger idea. And it fell within a budget that I was kind of hoping for, like within what I was aiming for. And so, yeah, I was the first person to sign on long before even the building was found. I was already agreed to be a part of it. As the facility got built and everything became along, I got more and more involved. And then, yeah. And so now I've been here going to be three years showing new people how to use the equipment how to pour a beer and that kind of stuff so even though my emphasis from camera has changed my it's still a very strong educational and you know craft beer focused kind of uh, organization so what is callister brewing like what is the mandate of this building that we're in well, uh, Chris and Diana built the brewery themselves. It's, a, it's the smallest brewery in Vancouver. We have a very small brew house in capacity. A uh, vast majority of what we make is sold through the tasting room. We just don't have the capacity to do more at this stage. But the idea was is that they would start it and then they would bring on three additional associate brewers for one year. And then they would pay a subscription. And then basically when uh, the beer was sold, we would just split it. 50-50 with Callister is broadly the idea of, of how it worked. And on the whole, it works really, really well. We've had a couple of great brewers come through already. They've gone on to bigger and better things. Uh, Brewery Creek and Machine were here the first year. Machine became Superflux and are now uh, dominating the hazy IPA market here in uh, Vancouver with some fantastic beers. I mean, but they've been doing those hazy IPAs for two years now like they started out doing those a long time ago here and now everyone else is kind of catching up so this is one of the nice things about Callister is that you do get this huge amount of innovation because it's such a smaller thing and there isn't that same commercial pressure you're allowed to kind of play around with a few things and try a few new things maybe they work maybe they don't but it's a big learning curve and you're able to kind of come up with some new things on some professional equipment that uh, you would actually have to put up a lot of capital for exactly right? like yeah. the vast you know some people have 
you know, home brewers or whatever, and people said to them, oh, this beer is fantastic, you should make it. And uh, yeah, you know, some people should. But again, it's difficult to take everything you have, your career, your lives, your mortgage and everything, throw it in the air and then try and start a business that you may not have any aptitude for, may not actually have any knowledge of, or, you know, that might not work out. So being able to do this is a, a very cost-effective way of getting in there and trying it out. If you then find a brand or find a market that is a nice niche, or you find someone with a whole bunch of money that wants to put some money behind you, then you can move on to bigger and better things. Lightheart and Boombox, who are just finishing up here at Callister, moving on to much bigger and better things, and good luck to them. They're fantastic people, and they wouldn't have, no one would have known about it if they hadn't had this opportunity here. And that was one of the reasons why I wasn't sure if I was going to be staying around at Callister for a second and now third year, because I don't want to be here if it means that I'm stopping someone like Boombox or Lightheart from taking a spot. But if there was no one else who wants to take their cask spots, then I'll take them because I still like them. Do you have any ambition then to grow if, if that time came? Um, I like to play around with a few different ideas. We've started packaging a few of our beers. Our best bitter, which is our main sort of flagship beer, as it were, is now available in cans, but only here in the tasting room. Um, in terms of expansion, I don't really think there's that much more that needs the, that I could do. I want to build a few more recipes. I've actually done most of the beers that I really wanted to make, but now I can kind of go back and have another bash and try and dial them in a bit. And I've still got a few ideas in the tank of crazy stuff that missed the cut the first two years. Yes. But the um it's it's a really fun way of doing it and being able to be involved in all stages, I think, is really interesting because so many breweries are so uh, so much demarcation and the roles that here I do everything from sourcing the ingredients, designing the recipes, brewing it myself, packaging it, and actually selling it in the tasting room because one of the conditions of the contract is that we have to spend a day in the tasting room each week, which I thoroughly enjoy. I actually do extra shifts periodically because I enjoy it so much, where I get to meet the customers, I get to talk to them about it, get the feedback from them, see what they think and also it's fun for the customers to actually meet the brewer and, uh, and chat to them about it as well so yeah uh, in the same way here at Callister the the brew house is completely visible uh, from the tasting room and the washrooms and so forth so that there isn't that same separation between what goes on behind closed doors and what you get given to drink we want to reduce that separation as much as possible so that people are aware of it and then they can be excited about it if they choose to be they don't have to be but uh, if they are and they're interested then we can be a part of it and we've also tried to stay in the heart of the community as well insofar as you know maintaining our relationship with van brewers and allowing them to come and do collaborations here and that kind of stuff just key being part of the community that's really what a huge chunk of it is the system here how big is the system here and is, it, is there any different process to you making your beer than there would be, say, somebody making like uh, like a regular IPA that they can get anywhere else or a, or a regular uh, ESB? Like, is there a different process in the actual making of a real ale? The whole brewing process is broadly the same whether you're doing it in a pot on the stove or you're doing it in a giant brew house. It's broadly the same. There's a few technical bits that can be uh, different, but ostensibly our system, which is a four-barrel system around a five hex or 500 liters, which is tiny compared to the vast majority of brewers here. You know, uh, Parallel 49 have these you know, 100 and 120 tank, uh, heck tanks, these giant beasts of tanks with tens of thousands of liters in. 
So ours is obviously much, much smaller than that. Uh, the only thing is, is that at every stage in brewing, you lose a bit of beer, whether it's transferring to the fermenter, fermenter to bright tanks, bright tanks to containers. You're always losing beer, especially uh, hoppier beers, dry hopping beers. You can really lose a lot of content. Now, if we were doing it, we were in our tanks, however, however you do it, you'll probably lose maybe 100 liters or so from it in terms of the yeast and the liquid, liquid trope which if you've got a hundred heck is only a 1% loss. But if you've got a five heck, then it's a 20% loss. And that 20% loss is very, very expensive. That's a, that's a tough pill to take. So certain beers, uh, less hops, less, uh, less loss. The casks actually are very efficient in that respect, but they do, you know, what they make up on the swings, they lose on the roundabouts because you still wind up with a lot of lees uh, that are left in the cask at the end of service. So we lose four, about three to four liters in each cask every time anyway. So we still lose some, but again, that's part of the process. Aside from that, it's broadly the same. Uh, there's only a few smaller differences, but yeah, the, the five, the four barrel, five hex system is really fun size, but it's pretty much just a scaled up homebrew system. So since you opened, have you seen a growth in awareness of real ales? Like, do you feel like there's kind of a trend of people becoming more aware and open to the idea of these traditional ales? I do seem that it seems to go that way because unfortunately there's been, there's a lot of people who come in and they're like, oh, I tried a cask once. I didn't like it because they had it at a cask night somewhere where it was a warm, flat badly looked after cask and that's kind of a big chunk of what i struggle with is that i'm trying to show people that the vast majority of the way that they've seen casks done in north america is wrong it's straight up wrong like every stage of it has been done incorrectly so putting in finished beer wrong putting it up on the bar and tapping it and serving it right away wrong 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 like that's just the worst possible way of doing it putting it in the fridge tapping it in advance allowing the carbonation and conditioning to balance itself out and then serving it through an engine keeping it still and cold the whole time you're going to get a much much better product so rather than like a, a yeasty milkshake of a of a beer glass that we've had sometimes from some casks so a big chunk of as i say why i wanted to do this was to to show people like no these aren't scary we British beer has that reputation for being warm and flat, which is not necessarily unfounded, but it also misses the point a little bit as well. So I think more and more people are trying it. I think a lot of people are finding it because the beers tend to be a lot more balanced than West Coast beers, which tend to be rather unbalanced, in my opinion. They're also lower carbonation or slightly different carbonation. Uh, so people don't get quite gassed up the way, which is quite appealing to some people who have uh, intestinal issues or find themselves getting bloated from craft beer quite quickly especially with it being so highly carbonated and so served so cold in most places really can do a number on people with irritable bowel syndrome or who are uh, prone to getting bloated and it also means that although this is you know by the by uh you can drink more of it because uh you know three pints of it won't fill you up quite the way that um that it's done so and also, I just like the way that it, the texture and the taste and the carbonation is different and therefore is interesting to me. So people try it and a lot of people tend to find that they like it. Uh, people who you might not necessarily expect. So things like 
milds often attract people who they're like, oh, I don't want anything bitter. I don't want anything strong. And I don't want it. It's like, okay, we'll, we'll give you some mild, try that out. So, you know, the mild to that lower alcohol style, little bit malty, tiny bit of hops, super, super easy to drink. Very, very accessible. And uh, it's really becoming a big, getting quite a big following these days. And you've won a, a couple of awards for your beers as well. Done some bits and pieces, had some uh, really good feedback on them. I'm just super pleased that uh, people are trying them and, and liking them. And similarly, there's a few people who've come in and found that this like, oh, yeah, this is my jam. And they become regulars pretty quickly. And uh, they'll come in and have four or five pints most days, which is ideal. So who inspires you locally with uh, the beers that they're making? I think overall, the quality is really magnificent, especially here in Yeast Van, uh, the breweries in the area. I'm actually really liking what uh, Ryan at Lupolo is doing at the moment. I think that he's got such a good brain on his shoulders. Like, again, built a place pretty much himself, had all the right ideas, and he's really getting in there and really working those styles hard. I also like the fact that he just he's not necessarily coming up with silly names for his beers, which, again, there's a place for it. It's totally fine. But, I, you know, it's that more British style where it's like name of the brewery, style of beer, that's what we've got. So that whole kind of idea behind it, I really like. And some of the small batch stuff. So uh, Ryan, to a large extent, I'm a big fan of. And, uh, you know, in the year that they've been working, uh, they've been doing really, really great work. I'm very happy with them. Uh, aside from that, there's not... There's not one person I don't think has got the capacity to do a great, some great work here in Vancouver. So, And if somebody was wanting to open up their own brewery, what would be some advice that you'd give them? Uh, one, don't do it for the money. Two, if you think you can do it in six months, you're not going to. It's going to take you at least a year. So whatever your initial uh, plan is to get it done, make sure you double it uh, and make sure you have the money to make sure you can get all the way there. Three, try and make sure you've got good solid styles dialed in that you know you'll be able to uh, to package. Above all, don't forget your uh, tasting room. That's uh, that's people's impression of you, and it's reflecting their view on it. So whilst you know some tasting rooms are kind of an afterthought, some places are really getting a lot of effort and money put into them uh, with restaurants and so forth in there. Uh, I think that that now now that the government is making us put more food in, it's now going to get more into being creating these kind of brew pub style venues with um, restaurant licenses. I think that's the natural way to go uh, simply because it also, it's a legal requirement, but it also adds a funding stream, which is super important to be able to do that. Uh, the other thing as well is, is I really think it's important that people try and find a niche now because I think the days of where you try and open a brewery with a lager, a pale ale, an IPA and a stout are long gone. I think those, you know, unless if you're trying to do it here in the city, like further out in the province that may well be totally fine still but i think that people opening with that kind of plan now are really going to struggle because the consumers are much more uh, savvy now they've got a lot more complex tastes and there's a lot more variety for people to try so unless you're really nailing those styles beautifully i think you need to try and find a niche that works a bit better for you which again five six years ago the idea of opening a uh, purely belgian style brewery in burnaby would have been insane uh, however, clearly they've demonstrated that the, as long as you know what you're doing and you can put out a good product and you're consistent, that's all you, you know, people will find it and they'll do it. So I'm likely to see more of that kind of specialization and more niche styles rather than just, you know, a plethora of more over the top, badly done IPAs. Like, let's really see some interesting niche stuff. I'm curious to see it. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. 
big thank you to Adam for his time. It was uh, really great to chat with him, and he makes delicious beer. You got to go down to Callister Brewing and check him out, as well as the others involved. I'll have to do an update episode soon all about Callister. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support it, you can do so by going to Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Cascadian Beer. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Cascadian Beer. We're also on Twitter at Twitter dot com forward slash cascadian beer or just at cascadian beer if you're in the twitter app if you really like this episode and you like this podcast series you can leave us a review on apple podcasts many of you have already done so and thank you so much for your feedback i really appreciate it It really motivates me to keep doing this podcast series thanks so much for listening until next time remember support your local